children to children's church, but they're not here. So if any adults want to go to children's church, um, I would say no, stay with us. Um, so let me go ahead and open us in prayer then. Lord, we do indeed give you our hearts. And Lord, we acknowledge that before Christ, our hearts were a mess. But Lord Jesus, you gave us new hearts, hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. And on that fleshy heart, you engraved your law to incline us towards obedience and towards love to you. And so, Lord, would you take our hearts this morning and make them even more like Jesus? Use that, Lord, to, to make us more like him, to follow him more clearly and closely. Father, this morning, I want to pray for uh, the Reese family as uh, Kevin's father, Ken, has passed away. He has gone on to his reward. He is in uh, glory at this moment. And Lord, we thank you for the faithful witness that Ken has had through so much of his life to your goodness and your power. And Lord, we pray that um, as he um, reunites with past friends and um, is resting in Abraham's bosom, uh, standing in Jesus' presence, Lord, uh, that that would be an encouragement to the rest of the family to press on, to endure, to carry on. Lord, we pray for the Reese family as um, they are gonna have to go through the, the process of dealing with Ken's death um, not a surprise. They knew it was coming, but it's still, Lord, it, um, it can catch us off guard when we wind up missing our loved ones. Uh, even when we celebrate their ascension to glory, their, their assumption into heaven, their resting with you, um, it can still be hard on us. So, Lord, we pray for the family. We pray for all the things that have to happen around that, all the earthly details that take place. And so would you be with Kevin and Rosie and the whole family and uh, give them um, a grief that is not without hope, but they may grieve in hope and they may see that they may see their, their father again in the resurrection of the, the uh, living and the dead. And Lord, we also want to pray for, for Joel Schrader as he is um, uh, sick. Lord, we pray that it is not COVID, that um, he has just a cold that snuck up on him and that you would restore his health soon. Lord, if it is COVID, would you give him the most mild case? and uh, help him to recover soon. We long to see uh, him and Ashley back with us. So would you bless them with, uh, with good health? And Lord, now as we turn to your word, especially this passage, uh, Lord Jesus, we're going to tread on holy ground as we discuss you and your essential nature, who you really are. Would you send your spirit to be with us? Lord, would you protect my mouth that I wouldn't say something um, amiss as we discuss this delicate issue. But Lord, most importantly, would you help us to understand your incarnation so that we might follow you as, you, as Paul wants us to do. And so Lord, would you bless this time in your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I have never seen an Oliver Stone movie. I checked the internet database of movies. I have never watched one of them. Um, I don't particularly care for his style. Um, he's got a political axe to grind, uh, but his, his, some of his films, especially in the 80s and the 90s, were pretty huge. Uh, one of them in 1987 was a film called Wall Street, and it's essentially Oliver Stone railing against capitalism. I find that hilarious because how much money did he make off this movie? <laughs> but, you know, this is, this is the problem. The, the protagonist in it is a man named uh, Gordon Gecko. He is a Wall Street pirate, a shark. He goes out and he's going to 
turn these companies around and make them really profitable. So he's at a, a stockholders meeting of one company uh, that he's trying to gut and reinvent so that it'll be, you know, make a lot of money. And listen to his defense. Uh, this is toward the end of his speech. This is his defense. Gordon Gecko says, the point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms, greed for life, greed for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge in mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save this company, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. I want to say that as big a caricature as that is of, uh, of Stone's vision of what capitalism is, um, at a human level, he couldn't be more wrong. Um, greed is a part of human nature. It's, it's part of a fallen human nature, um, but it's not good. It's not supposed to be that way. And so as we look again at, at uh, Philippians, as we start in chapter two, Paul's going to show us why greed is not good, but he's also going to help us understand how do we overcome that? Since the fall, we've been bent that way. How do we not do that? And, and the, the example, the, the, the way that we do that is going to be a little bit surprising. So let's take a look at this. He starts the beginning of chapter two. So if there is any encouragement in Christ. So what we saw last week is we were talking about honoring Christ in our bodies. And that was that famous line, to die is gain. And we get that. We understood that to die is to gain. We are set free from sin. We ascend into heaven. We are with Jesus, waiting the resurrection, ready to come back. Um, it's so much better to die and to be with Christ. But I said, well, then why stick around? Well, Paul explains that to live is Christ. And what we saw last week is when he says to live is Christ, he means serving other people. That's exactly what he meant last week. And I told you last week, Get used to this because we're going to hear it a lot. Well, guess what? We're going to hear it some more this week too. So what we saw last week was that idea of living on in Christ to serve others. Now, this week, he's going to, he's going to tell us how do we adopt that mindset? How do we get to the point where we want to do that? Because you can do it begrudgingly and just mess it up. But how would you become the person who would love to serve other people? And Paul's going to give us the answer this morning. So he starts, so... That's the connection that says, this is what I want you to be like. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, he starts off with an if statement. And the next portion, he's going to say, then, if this is true, then do this. And then he's going to give us the power to do it. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, is there any encouragement in Christ? Do you have any encouragement in Christ? Does, does Jesus Christ encourage you at all? He defeated all your foes including the ones you had no chance of ever touching, the foes that would just absolutely defeat you. He became sin for us. He took our sin and he broke it. He canceled the debt. He, wrote, he, he destroyed the debt. He, he faced death. He entered into death and then he, he disarmed it by raising again. He overcame death. He defeated death. If you die, what is your chance of defeating death? on your own naturally, zero. Jesus defeated it for you. He defeated Satan. He, he took Satan's greatest weapon, which was a fear of death, and took it away from him. So you can't scare my people anymore. 
He defeated hell. We will not face punishment for our sin because of what Jesus has done. He defeated the world. Don't, don't fear the world. I have overcome the world, he tells us. Is that an encouragement to you? Do you feel encouraged when you think about what Jesus has done for that? Do you feel encouraged to think Jesus lived the life we didn't? He, he lived perfectly under the law, never sinned. And he did it because you can't, because you wouldn't. And not only does he set, then say, well, now you're innocent because of me. He takes that active righteousness, that life lived in fulfillment of God's every desire for himself, and he puts it on us. It's credited to us. It's as if we lived that perfect life, not just innocent, but actively righteous. He's given that to us. He paid the debt that we owed for not living that way. And then he rose again so that we might enjoy the benefit of that. Is there any encouragement in that for you? He gathered us into his church. He, he doesn't just say, here, this is what I've done for you now. You're on your own. Go figure it out. He, he gathers us into his church. He gives within the church gifts to each person, different gifts for ways that we will work together, preachers and teachers, servants, all of these things so that communally together, we can say, Lord, you are working in all these different people. Look at the way you're blessing all of these folks to encourage us in the faith. He gives spiritual gifts to people. He himself is the head of the church, which he's worn us into. And what Paul tells us is we are all being knit together and growing into that head. We are becoming like that image of Christ. Does that give you any encouragement to think that he has brought you into a family? He is currently seated at the right hand of God. Jesus in heaven is ruling the nations. History is not some, some truck running down the road out of control, ready to smash into whatever it finds. He is controlling exactly how things will play out. He works all things together for your good. He ensures that his mission that he has given us, the, the job that he's told us to do, will succeed. He's not only promised that he's in heaven ruling and saying this is going to happen. Does that give you any encouragement? Is that encouraging to think of, of that? If there's any encouragement in Christ, is there any encouragement in Christ? There is tons of encouragement in Christ. So what you see Paul doing here is he's setting up these if statements, if, and this is true. And so he's reminding us of how these things are true and building in us this confidence in Christ. If there is any comfort in Christ, or if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love. Now, in the New Living Translation and the New International Version, they translate it, any comfort from his love. The his is not in the Greek, but I don't think it's a bad move to say his love because the context is if, he, if there's any encouragement in him. So the rest of these things are essentially in him. Is there any comfort from the love that he has for you? That his love was so great that he would go to the cross and die for you. That he loved us from the foundation of the world before we even knew him. Is there any comfort in knowing that you are loved so richly and so deeply by someone you haven't seen, by someone who knew how bad you were, probably knows how bad you were more thoroughly than you do? Is there any comfort in being loved by a person like that who sees you for who you actually are so deeply? Paul says, if there's any participation in the spirit, that word participation, we've come across that word previously in, in uh, chapter one, verse five, it was partnership in the gospel. 
It's koinonia. What it means is fellowship. Is there any fellowship in the spirit? So Jesus has given us his spirit. He's poured out his spirit on us. He's given us spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit gives us new hearts, inclines us towards obedience. Is there any fellowship in that? There's incredible fellowship. This, This fellowship that we have in the church because of the spirit transcends all sorts of boundaries. Jew and Gentile, that used to be a huge dividing point, obliterated. Rich and poor, that's gone. It doesn't matter how much money you make. You don't get a better seat because you pay more money. Free or slave, male or female, on and on. The Spirit brings that. That's why in Ephesians 4, Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Is there any fellowship in the spirit? It's amazing. It it is world shattering. It doesn't make any sense by worldly standards, how we can be together like this. So yes, there is participation in the spirit. There is encouragement in the spirit. There is koinonia in the spirit. And then he says, any affection and sympathy. The, the word affection there, he, he brought up earlier in, verses, in uh, chapter 1, verse 8, and he talked about the affection of Christ. At the time, I said that was that deep inner feeling of, of compassion and love. If there's that kind of affection for you, if Jesus has given you that kind of affection and that kind of sympathy, if those things are true, and they all are, then in verse 2, Paul says, if that's true, then... Complete my joy by being of the same mind. If all of that is true, and it is, then make me happy. That's what he's saying, is is I want to look at the Philippian church and be filled with joy at how you are doing. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. So he sandwiches it here. Be the same mind, the same love, and one mind. What he's saying is last week we talked about having one mind. That was his goal for the Philippians is to have this one mind, this one goal that we're all reaching for. And so now he's saying, now make me happy by doing that. Let me see that in you. But you notice what's at the center of this is the same mind, the same love. And earlier we had talked about this idea of love. We are not thinking machines primarily. We are lovers. And what we love will dictate what we do. So he wants them to be one mind, agree on on the purpose, the goal of life, but also love the same things. And that's how he's going to bring us together. That's that's what he wants to see in the Philippians. So when mind comes up here, it's three times, and it's wedged in there, and love is at the center. So the next verse, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's what it looks like to have the same mind and the same loves is you don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, you count others as more significant than yourselves. That, that's the fruit that he's looking for. He says again in verse four, let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So he wants us to be a community of people who are more interested in what's best for the other person. Now, if we're all doing that in community, guess what? Nobody loses. It's a great deal. Why don't we do that? 
why do we, we not always act like that? Why is it so hard for us to do that? Well, I mean, it goes right back to the fall, doesn't it? When Eve saw the fruit and the, the serpent had confused her enough, she saw that the fruit was good to eat. Hey, this is nutritious food. It's, it's pleasant, pleasing to the eye. It looks really good and it's profitable to make somebody wise. Well, why wouldn't I want that for myself? And so she, ignoring what God had told her, she takes and eats. And, and then Adam looks and goes, well, it didn't kill her. It must be okay. I'll take and eat too. Not deceived. And in Adam, we all fall. We are all bent just like Adam was at that moment. We're interested in what is best for us at the expense of others. What drives us to that? What would make you be more interested in um, getting in line first? I, I got to tell you, I do this at Disneyland. I don't want people getting in front of me in line. I want to get there first. Um, yesterday at Costco, this guy kind of backed up in front of me and I was like, dude, line's back there. Um, what makes me do that? <laughs> what, what drives me to that? I, I don't know for sure. I'm not going to try to diagnose myself, but I think one of the most driving factors in that kind of an attitude is fear. We're, we're afraid there won't be enough. There's not enough time for me at the amusement park, so I have to get in line now, and I have to beat those other three people that are walking this way, and it's about me. It's not about them. It's, there's, we're in line to get some food, and I'm going to rush to the front and get the food first because I'm afraid there might not be enough, or I might not get the ones I want. Now, fear of a lack or fear of a deficiency can drive that. It's more complicated than that. I'm, I'm trying to simplify here. There are cultural ways that this can express itself, which are not based in fear and are not self-serving. So here in the West, when we get in line, when we're going to go someplace, we queue up and we get in line. And that's the expected norm. In Asia, everybody swarms to the front, not because they don't care about other people. They're, they're more community conscious than we are. It's just how they do it. So don't look and judge everybody, you know, and, and say, well, that person's being, you know, selfish. It, it may be you being selfish, too. But I think what's at the heart is that, that fear that I won't get enough. So why would I gossip about somebody else at work? Why would I tell a story about somebody else? I may not get enough respect. And if I, can if I gossip about that person, then I'll get more respect. People will see them as less than me. That was how I was in, in elementary school. Thank God it didn't last past elementary school, but it was a pecking order. And I wanted people underneath me on the pecking order. And, and so I would find the one kid that I could tease because everybody teased me. And, and that's just, that's that fear. And, and it can really drive us. It's, it's not the only answer, but it's, I think it's part of it. And that's why Paul says, have the same mind, the same love, and uh, full accord in one mind. Why? Because 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So that's how we can become free of that fear of not getting what I think I want or what's important to me is, is that perfect love. How do I get there? How, how can I get from grousing at a guy at Costco because he's in line in front of me to saying, well, you know, it's no big deal. It's okay. How do I, how do I move from that? The problem is it's rooted in the fall. Our hearts are bent. They're, they're curved inward. They're more interested in ourselves naturally. So Paul writes to these folks and he tells, this is what I want you to do. I want you to think of another person and go, that person's more important than I am. I may, not, I may not have time today, but my time is not as important as that person's time. 
That's what he wants us to do. How do we get there? Well, Paul tells us. And, and the answer for that is alarming because he says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, there's the promise. This is how I can fix that inward bent. And where does it go? Verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. We're about to enter some very sacred and holy ground here. We're talking about the essential nature of who Jesus is. And so I'm going to try real hard not to mess this up, not to say something unfortunate, because there's a lot of curious phrases here. So though he was in the form of God, uh, the, the word form is morphe, the shape. So some people think, well, that means he wasn't God, but he was like God. Well, what is the shape of God? God is a spirit. He has no physical presence. So there is no shape to be conformed to. That's the literal interpretation of morphe is the physical shape. So what must this mean? This must mean something beyond just the physical shape. What he's saying is he is in that same type of person as God. He is the same thing as God. So uh, other translations would say here, though he was by nature God. And I think that's where Paul is going with this. So why did he say it in the form of the morphe? Well, the one theory is that these couple of verses about Jesus are an ancient hymn that the church sang. And so if they're this ancient hymn, when you sing a hymn, did you notice today we said thee, I exalt thee? When was the last time you used thee in, in common language? The way that the, the, the hymn, if this was a hymn, was written was in this elevated language. And so that's probably why he used the word morphe here, is though he existed in the form of God, though he was essentially God, though he was God. So that's where I think he's getting a picturesque way of saying in the form of God, because God doesn't have a form. So this must be something more. Though he existed in the form of God, Jesus Christ, before he was born, was the eternally begotten second person of the Trinity, the Son of the Father forever and ever. There was never a time when the Son wasn't. He has always been. He existed in the form of God. But, Paul says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So some heretics will say, well, see, he wasn't God, and he didn't think that he should make himself equal with God. That's not, that's a misunderstanding of the, the, the word here. That word grasp literally is grasp. It means to grab onto something. But the way that it was used um, often was uh, something taken to yourself. So imagine if you were really literal with the word, that's a power grab on her part. Is she really reaching for a, a power line? It, she's not reaching for something. What it is, is it's this play by this person to gain more power to themselves. So the same thing is here. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, it wasn't something that he was holding on to to use for his own benefit. It was true. It was who he was. He had equality with God. He was God. But he said, I'm not going to hold on to that. And so how did he not hold on to that? Well, he keeps going in verse 7. But he emptied himself. He let go of his prerogatives, his privileges, and emptied himself. Some people will say, well, what it meant is he emptied himself of his divine nature. 
he gave up certain attributes of his divine nature. That's not what emptied means. And you can tell because the context will tell us what does it mean that the eternally begotten son of God emptied himself? He didn't give up divinity. One of the attributes of divinity is it doesn't change. God is unchangeable. So he can't have emptied himself of his divine nature. Otherwise, he wouldn't be divine. So what did he empty himself of? Well, he emptied himself. He, re he relinquished the privileges of divinity by taking the form of a servant. That's what I mean by he said it wasn't his equality with God wasn't something to be grasped. He didn't hang on to that. He took the form of the servant. So what we get in this little phrase here is the dual natures of Christ. He existed in the form of God. He became a servant. Jesus is the only person in history, the only person that ever will be who has two distinct natures. You have never met anybody with two natures. Every person you've met has a human nature, period. And so when we get to this point, we start talking about what does it mean that Jesus has two natures? It's hard to explain. So if you're confused after this, you're in good, good shape. I have done my job. <laughs> I haven't clarified something that's very confusing. When we talk about Jesus emptying himself and taking the form of a servant, what we mean is his divine nature included things like omnipresence. God is present everywhere in the universe. There's no place that God is not aware of. He is present everywhere. But in his human nature, Jesus was not there when Lazarus died. He was a couple of days away. And so Lazarus' sisters say, if you had been here, he would have been saved. His divine nature was there. His human nature was not. His divine nature was omniscient, knows all things. The divine nature knows everything that has happened, everything that's happening now, everything that will happen in the future. And on top of that, the divine nature also knows what are called counterfactuals, what could have happened if something else had gone on. That's a lot of understanding. Jesus' divine nature knew all of those things. His human nature said, I don't know when I'm coming back. Only my father in heaven knows that. Well, why would he not know? Isn't he, he, he's God. Yes, he is. But he's also perfectly human. And human beings, despite how much we think we do, we do not have omniscience. We may act like it, we may talk like it, but we do not have omniscience. We do not know all things. And so it would be inappropriate for Jesus' human nature to know all things, because it's not how we do it. So how did Jesus know, for example, the thoughts of the Pharisees, their hearts and what they were thinking inside? Well, he knew it the way any human would know something like that. God would reveal it to him. So Jesus in his human nature is not omniscient, in his divine nature, divine nature, he is. Is this confusing yet? It begins to sound like Jesus is psychotic. He's got two things going on inside himself, but he's not. What, what, what I'm trying to do here is, is paint a picture of how the um, Chalcedonian council defined Jesus' two natures. The Chalcedonian council said they are not mixed, so you don't wind up with a third nature that's kind of human and kind of divine, nor are they separate from each other so that they're, they're not connected. They are two distinct natures in one person. And the divine nature does what the divine nature does, and the human nature does what the human nature does, but you still think of them as one person. 
every time I get, every time I hear, hear myself say those words, I blow my own mind. How am I supposed to think like that? Well, the good news is, if I invented a God, I wouldn't do that to him. I would want him explainable. I'd want him easily understood. This God is blowing my mind because he's not like us. He's very different from us. But yet Jesus himself is very like us because he is a full human nature. Now, the scriptures say, Hebrews says, he is like us in all things except sin. The reason it's except sin is because sin is not part of human nature. It is a product of the fall. It is not, you know, when you define what a human being is, everybody we know is sinful. So we think sin is, is, is part of that. It's not. It is a byproduct of the fall. It is incorporated in humanity. And it wasn't there in the garden, and it won't be there in the end. Jesus will take sin and throw it into the lake of fire. Sin will not be part of us after the resurrection. That's great news, by the way. So when Jesus comes as perfect man, he is without sin because that's not what perfect man has. But he's also divine at the same time. And what Paul is getting at here when he says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant, what he's talking about is being born in human form. So the eternally begotten Son of God always existed, and at a point in time, he became an embryo in Mary's womb. He added to his infinity, his, his, his gigantic divine nature, he added to it a human nature. Mathematicians in the room, what is infinity plus 0.00001? It's still infinity. It didn't change Jesus' divine nature. It didn't reduce it or diminish it. Adding anything to that doesn't diminish. It doesn't even add to it. It remains unchanged. So he took the form of a servant. He became born in, in Mary's womb. And what Luke 2.52 tells us is he grew in wisdom and stature before God and man. The unchangeable God, the God who is not lacking or deficient in anything, is born as a human being and then grows in wisdom. As an infant, he couldn't speak. He couldn't control his bowels. He couldn't perform miracles. He couldn't do anything. He was a normal human baby. And as he grows, his human nature grows the way human nature grows. But look at what Paul says. He, he didn't take the form of a mighty king. He didn't take the form of the ruler of the world. He didn't take the form of a, of a uh, valiant military dictator. He took the form of a servant. He was born not in palaces, not in comfortable middle-class families. He was born to a poor, poor family in Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He was born in the lowest of estates. This mighty, exalted, powerful, privileged God is born in the lowest of estates as, as a person. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't come as a human with superpowers like a, like a God in, in human form. He became a, an actual human. He didn't shed any of those things. He did, his human nature didn't use them. He took the form of the servant being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. This is not the end of it. He was, it wasn't um, humbling enough to just be born in a, in a poor family. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Jesus himself, as the perfect man, would never experience death. He hadn't sinned. He had nothing to pay for. But death came for him anyway. And it came for him not by falling off a cliff or getting hit by a car. It became to him in the most humiliating form of death, which was death on a cross, being strung up between two thieves who mocked him, having his clothes auctioned off in front of him. His friends left him, deserted him, took off. Peter says, I never knew the man. Do you see how far Jesus has come down? The point of death on the cross was the ultimate humiliation. But what Paul says is not he was forced into it, but he became obedient to that. Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will. And so as he hangs on the cross, as he's hanging there dying, his, his final words are, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even God forsakes him on the cross. Could he be any lower? He who existed in the form of God from eternity past comes all the way down to be abandoned by his friend and by his father. That's how far he has come. Now, why does Paul tell us this? Why does he give us this? He says, the the mind that I want you to have, this humility that I want you to, to grow in is yours in Christ. Look at the example he set. Now, he sets this example. Does that mean Paul is saying, see how much Jesus did? You better go out and do that. It can't be. There is no way we can experience divine nature. You don't have one. You're fully human. There is no way for you to be sinless in this world. It doesn't happen. You have a sinful nature. So why does he show us this exaltation of Jesus, of of who he was and how far he came down? I think the key is in what he says next. Verse 9, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus lost everything. He didn't count equality with God to be something to be grasped. He became a servant. He died on a cross. He was abandoned by friends and his father. And the result was he is now given a name that's higher than any name. He didn't lose anything by giving everything up. So how can you think of other people as more important than yourself? Let go of the fear that there's not enough. Let go of the fear that if I don't get this, I won't have enough respect. If I don't get this, people won't like me enough. Jesus went through all of that. The people hated him. The Jews crucified him. The Gentiles mocked him. People didn't like him. But look what he says next. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed a name on him that is above every name. So I don't care if you liked him or not. Every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and underneath the earth. Jesus lost nothing by giving everything up. And why did he give it up? He gave it up for us so that he could win us to himself, so that he could make a people that would know him and trust him and love him. So when we face that that fear that If I put that other person ahead of me, if I think of them as more important than me, if I want to meet their needs first, well, I'm not going to get anything out of this. That's just fear. Let it go. 
Jesus gave up much more, so much more than you will ever be asked to give up. You can't give up the, the privileges of, of being divinity. You're not divine. Jesus gave that up. Now, I got to be careful there. He didn't stop being divine. He, he set aside the privileges that his human um, nature could have enjoyed by having the divinity, but he didn't. He took the form of a servant. So therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that's above every name. He didn't lose. So when it comes time for you to serve another person, when, when there's somebody that needs help inside or outside the church, what Paul is telling you to do is, I want you to think of that other person as more important than yourself. And the reason you can do that is because Jesus gave up so much more for you. You can't lose. You can't lose by serving somebody else. Even if it kills you, you don't lose. To live as Christ, to die as gain. There is no way to lose in this proposition. If you're in Christ, this mind is in, yours in Christ. Can you serve the other person? Can you be inconvenienced for the other person? Can you have a conversation when the other person is super boring and yet struggle to listen, to care for them, to, to give them the honor, the respect of your presence? It doesn't have to be, you don't have to go die on a cross. Sometimes it's, it's the cross of just being with the person and sitting and listening. Um, people outside of Christ, some of them are absolutely miserable and they wanna make everybody else miserable. And so how can you love them in the middle of that? How did Jesus love you when you were miserable? That's the picture he's painting for us. So we have to adopt. Paul wants us to make him happy. He wants us to make his joy complete by adopting this mindset of thinking that other person is more important than I am. Their opinion is more important than I am. Their story is more important than I am. Their need is more important than I am. All of those things. Why? Because in Christ, I don't lose by giving it all away. There's, there's no downside to this equation. There's no negative side to it. Beloved, this mind is yours in Christ. It's available to you. It is sitting in front of you. You can grasp this. You can meditate on the incarnation of, of the second person of the Trinity. You can see how much he's given to you and think, I can let go. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be worried that I won't get enough. He's given all for you. And now what he's saying is, since I have given you everything, you are free to give everything away and gain in the end. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, I will confess uh, first up front, uh, be the first one to say it. I str struggle with this. I often think that I deserve better. I deserve more, that I deserve to be heard. I deserve to um, receive these things. Um, and Lord, when I'm thinking in those ways, I'm not thinking like you are. So Lord, would you give me that mind to serve others much more selflessly? And Lord, I pray for all of us, this whole church, that we would all have that mindset of how can I make the other person more important than me? How can I give them more? How can I spend more on them than I spend on myself? Time, money, energy, attention, affection. And Lord, I pray that you would infect your church throughout the Antelope Valley with that attitude, that Christians across the Antelope Valley would be a puzzle 
to others outside the, the faith. That that kind of lifestyle, that kind of um, giving uh, my entire life away so that I might gain in the end would just blow people's minds. They wouldn't understand how people can be like that. And Lord, I pray that you would make your church faithful to tell them the truth. I can only live that way because Jesus did that for me. And so I lose nothing by doing that. Lord, would you spark revival in our, in our midst, energize and equip your church for the work that you've called her to and ensure that it all takes place well. And Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.